Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambinder here. Thanks again for joining us for the Braunweld Chronicles as we learn about pivotal moments in the history of cardiology from the legendary Dr. Eugene Braunweld. In the last episode, we covered Chapter 2, the Camelot years, myocardial oxygen consumption, and the transeptal approach, which really revolutionized transcatheter diagnostics and interventions. Now join us for Chapter 3, where Dr. Braunwell discusses his experiences with the natural history of untreated aortic stenosis, beta blockers in heart failure, and seizing the moment. This is a great one. As we take in this breathtaking series, please remember that CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Dr. Braunwald, as CardioNerds, we're particularly excited to ask you this next question because our very first episode was aortic stenosis and very much based on your work. And in Thomas Lee's book, he describes a moment when Dr. Glenn Morrow was at a Friday afternoon cath conference discussing a patient with severe aortic regurgitation. In context, the first aortic valve replacement had only occurred just a few years prior. And he asked you, how would this patient be doing in five years? And you admitted, if, yeah. If you, we don't, if we don't operate, if we don't operate, right? Yeah. That's right. And you admitted that you did not know the answer to that. How did this moment influence your research, including defining the natural history of aortic stenosis that has become the bedrock of all medical students everywhere? Well, so you know, a lot of people have asked me, who was your major mentor in your professional life, and. Um, it was Glenn Morrow, a cardiac surgeon. Imagine a surgeon being a mentor to a uh, future professor of medicine. How could that be? So he was six years older than I was and um, uh, trained at Hopkins for his residency. And I think that he entered the public health service because I think they paid for his tuition when he went to medical school. As I told you, I sort of accelerated, and with his blessing, I became chief of cardiology, and we were then equal. Even though he was my mentor and older, I was the chief of cardiology, he was the chief of cardiac surgery, we came together at at CAF conference uh, every Friday. Also had other meetings, but anyway. We had this young man in his 20s with wide open aortic regurge, you know, blood pressure like 160 over 20, really pounding all of the signs of uh, that we know and love about wide open AI. But he was asymptomatic. And uh, as you point out, valve replacement, there was no good valve at that point. At that moment, there were valves, and you could replace the valve but the outlook, it was before the star valve came. And they were made of uh, material and 
they deteriorated after a couple of years. So it was a major deal. And therefore, his question is, if we leave him alone, he's asymptomatic, what's going to happen? Is he going to die? Or should we take a chance and risk it and so forth? And I said, I don't know. And uh, so this in a fairly large conference, he says, you medical guys, no, he called us mopes. He says, you medical mopes aren't good for very much. He said, you can't fix it, and you can't even tell me what's going to happen. And I took that back, and I thought about it. And, you know, all that we were doing was observing patients in the acute stage of their illness. You know, they'd come to the NIH for evaluation, and then they were either operated on or not. If they were operated on, they would come back. If they were not, they would be sent back to their physicians. And you sort of lose them. And at that time, interestingly, natural history wasn't something that many people thought about. It was episodic. And when a treatment comes along, when a new therapy occurs, that's when people begin to think natural history because that question came up. So again, John Ross and I decided that we were going to look at all the patients with AS whom we had seen since the opening of that hospital and also going forward patients with AS and look at their natural history. And it was uh, as a result of that one case that served as the stimulus to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're missing the boat here. So that again falls into the category of a lot of luck. You get the right place at the right time with the right people. The right people, there were two right people in, in this. There was John Ross and there was Glenborough and so on. Now you have to say, okay, I was lucky enough to be able to put this together. And uh, I think that's what happened with transeptal. Yeah, Dr. Brunwald, that story that you just told and you keep repeating it again and again, you know, right place, right time, right people, and a whole lot of luck. You know, reading Thomas Lee's book and some of your interviews, that, that keeps coming across, but I, I just can't believe how much luck. And that kind of gets to... Well, I, yeah, yeah, I, I mean... I'm not modest. <laughs> and I think that I, I was able to seize the moment and seize the situation. But that's not always the case. I mean, I I can tell you things that I, as I look back, that I missed in a large way. Let me give you an example of something that bothers me. So around 1962, I became interested in, from the work uh, done in the Sarnoff Laboratory, about neurohumoral control of the heart. And when I think about neurohumoral control at that time, I'm thinking adrenergic nervous system. And when you think adrenergic nervous system, you think about norepinephrine. So, piece of luck. Our lab 
chemistry lab that we had in cardiology. I mean, we had a bank of laboratories. Uh, the chemistry lab we had is next to the chemistry laboratory of a distinguished pharmacologist called Julius Axelrod. Julius Axelrod also won the Nobel Prize. So he's not a small figure. Uh, he was small in size, but he was a big, big intellect. And uh, he was measuring norepinephrine all the time. And so because he was next door and I would hear, see, the beauty of the NIH is the kind of contacts of people that you have there and people that you see on the elevator, people that you see in the dining room. So Axelrod is measuring norepinephrine and I'm thinking about neurohormonal control. So I asked him, Julie, I said, could your technician teach my technician, Martha, how to measure norepi? He said, of course. And you know, a week later, we're measuring norepinephrine, measuring it in heart failure. It's elevated in heart failure. It rises with exercise to abnormal level. We do a whole bunch of normal controls. Norepi is lower and, and with exercise doesn't change very much. Then we measure norepi in a 24-hour urine excretion to see whether you know, this exercise is brief and so forth, what happens over the day. And we classified patients by New York art class, and boy, the thing goes up. So we have the first neurohumeral control of the circulation, and we measure the norepi in the heart. We, we get specimens of atrium that Glenn Morrow gives us from, from his surgery, and we measure the norepinephrine there. It's depleted in the heart because of the constant barrage of the sympathetic nervous system. Two or three years later, I forget the exact timing, I'm at a conference in London, and I, I meet a gentleman, a professor, James Black, who described the first beta blocker. Now, in a different part of my life, different direction, different lab, we had discovered hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And by accident, we have found that a positive inotrope increases contractility. So I hear uh, James Black describing his work with a beta adrenergic blocker. By the way, James Black won the Nobel Prize for the beta blocker. So we're talking Nobel Prize. It's just coming out your ears by now. So he gave me a vial of pronethalol, which was the uh, grand uh, parent of propranolol. And uh, I put it in my pocket. And uh, if, um, if I were to say how it came into the United States, I might be arrested. Anyway, we took, we took this and gave it to a patient with hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We called it at that time IHSS, and now it's HCM, which is a better name. And the gradient was reduced. And as you know, it has become significant, although not terrific, in therapy. It is used, of course, now there's a new drug, Mavacamptin, that has appeared just in the past year, 
and I serve on the uh, uh, scientific advisory board of a company that myocardia that makes this. Anyhow, so we come back and we start our patients on beta blockade. And we did some controls, we did exercise and so forth, and it gradually gets accepted as a pretty good drug. You don't have anything else. This is before calcium antagonists, and they're not any better anyway. So, but what did I miss? I, I struck out on not using it in patients with heart failure. I mean, as I think about it, everything was there. I'm studying heart failure. I have defined the importance of the adrenergic nervous system in heart failure. I have a vial of beta blockade in here. I'm using it, but I'm using it on a sort of small time a group, HCM, not uh, heart failure. We could have had a whole heart failure story. It was done by uh, a group in um, Göteborg, Sweden, and obviously has changed the treatment of heart failure. So, you know, it's not always been right. I think about this, this one a lot between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Brunel, I'd like to take you back to what you just mentioned there, you know, another part of your life and another lab. You mentioned the HCM story and all our listeners and all of us here would love to hear that. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Chapter 3. Be sure to tune in for Chapter 4, where Dr. Bronwell will tell us about a royal screw-up and the discovery of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. (laughs) 